We are continuing to work through the Sermon on the Mount. We're at the end of chapter 5. And so if you would turn in your Bibles, Jesus is continuing to teach his disciples about life in the kingdom of God. And from verses 33 to 48, we have the last, the final three of Jesus is what we're calling antitheses. In other words, contrasts. Each part of these says, you've heard that it was said, and Jesus is repeating a tradition, a form of interpretation that was given by the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. And then he's given his true meaning, intention, exposition, expounding of the law. And he's here dealing with three topics which all, just, which all show how different, how countercultural, if you would, the Christian truly is. We talked about last week how we covered, I called it a trifecta, a great, you know, murder, lust, divorce. How's that for just an uplifting sermon for you? Well, this, this morning may be less controversial, but no less challenging, because the topics Jesus is dealing with here today are honesty, integrity, your yes being yes, your no being no, being a wholehearted person of integrity. Dealing with the issue of revenge or retaliation. How do you respond relationally to somebody who has truly hurt you, who's rejected you, who's betrayed you? And that it's kind of like Jesus keeps pushing the envelope. And then New Testament, holy war. Listen, New Testament, holy war, which is not like the way it was in the Old Testament, but instead it's through loving your enemies. So let's turn our hearts, Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 48. The bulletin stops at verse 46. I'm going to read the last two verses of the chapter as well, just so you know. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give. To the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do you feel like you could do with this? It's easy stuff, isn't it? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but give your, go the extra mile, give your cloak away, love your enemies. Oh, and then how does he end? Be perfect as your... Isn't there a part of you that just kind of wants to say, Jesus, what are you thinking? What's going on here? Supernatural living. I titled the sermon this morning, 
How are we different? And if we ask that question, the answer comes, we are different, Christians are different, by living in the kingdom of God an extraordinary life in the context of our ordinary relationships. Let me say that again. If we ask the question, how are we different, the answer comes in the normal, ordinary course of life. In other words, the Christian life, which is life in the kingdom of heaven, is extraordinary in the context of the ordinary. And it's so extraordinary, in fact, it is supernatural. Tim Keller defined the kingdom of God. And remember, Jesus' sermon here is about life in the kingdom. He introduced it in chapter 4 by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he's calling his disciples and saying, here's what life in the inaugurated kingdom is all about. And Dr. Keller says the kingdom of God is the renewal of the world through the entrance of of supernatural forces. And do you recognize that the entrance of the supernatural forces are the word of God, the spirit of God, and the church of God, which is the place where the word and spirit dwells. That we are, think about, we use these metaphors and these imageries, and I wonder sometimes if they just slip off our tongues. We say we're the body of Christ. Do you recognize what that literally means? That means we are a supernatural presence in the world. Now, how are we doing at living supernaturally? In the context of ordinary things like honesty and integrity. In terms of our letting our yes be yes and our no, no. In terms of not seeking revenge through bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, having other people pay. And yes, going the extra mile of loving even our enemies. It really is supernatural. I'll share with you a quick story of one of the times, and it, they're very few and far between sometimes, I feel like, in my life, but this was one where I go, that wasn't me. It had to be supernatural. Years ago, probably almost 20 years ago, I was working in Oklahoma. I was ministering in Oklahoma, praying. Evie and I were praying about church planning and thinking about it. And we had a church out in Northern California the Bay Area that was kind of Silicon Valley area that was pursuing us, wanted to come out and check out their church plant. Evie and I have always said, if she doesn't feel called somewhere, I'm not called to that place. So we were kind of talking and doing conference. She says, Jeff, I may love California. That's great, but we're not going. Too expensive, we're not doing it. So immediately I'm going. I'm talking to the head of the search committee, and I'm going, nope, my yes has to be yes. My no has to be no. I can't do it. There is no way. He's saying, won't you come out and look at the place? Nope. I already know. My wife has said, nope, it's going to be no. My yes is yes. My no is no. Then he dangled, which for me was one of the most difficult ethical decisions of my life. He says, Jeff, all I want you to do is come out and take a look at it. And I happen to be friends, and he knew I liked golf because we had been conversing. And he says, I happen to be friends with Johnny Miller, and I can get us on Pebble Beach for free. Now, for those of you who don't play golf, Pebble Beach is one of the greatest golf courses. I mean, there's St. Andrews, there's Augusta, then there's probably Pebble Beach. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And then I'm thinking, do not lead me into temptation. Okay. (laughs) And I went, no, my yes has to be yes, my no has to be no. And then I went, I got off the phone, bald like a baby, and said, that cannot be me. Couldn't I have gone, taken his money, Had a drink with Johnny Miller, shot 140, 
and come back and still said no? But the text of Scripture says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And we are called in the ordinary things of life. See, an adjunct teacher at Reformed Seminary, Jonathan Pennington, reminds us that the entire sermon is concerned with the theme of, he calls it, whole person righteousness, human flourishing. And he even uses the end of the passage, verse 48, which is really, and this is one of the reasons I emphasize this, it's not really the best translation of it, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, because in English, the word perfection makes us think of sinless perfection and moral perfection. And that's not what the Greek word is meaning there. The Greek word is the word teleos, which means wholeness, fullness, completion. So to be perfect is more like be whole, be one, be single-minded and wholehearted as your heavenly father is whole and complete. And an interesting promise of the gospel, even as I go through and walk us through these three areas where we are, in Pennington's words, to have whole person righteousness, I want you to remember the promise of the gospel. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled. So this be whole, be complete, be full is out of the fullness of Christ that you've been given. Some of the discipline we have to learn in the Christian life, because remember, here's the process of sanctification. Paul has said you're transformed through the renewing. Not the one-time renewal of your mind. But the renewing, do you renew your mind moment by moment, day by day? Do you approach the scriptures saying, I need to drink from the fountain of life that I've been filled in Christ and I live out of that overflowing so that I come to the scriptures. The purpose of my daily devotion is to be blown away and astounded by my fullness in Christ. Because as we go through this, here's the two choices. We either water down the word of God and say it's not saying what it's really saying. Because what Jesus is doing is pushing the envelope here. This is supernatural life in the kingdom. And the kingdom of God is supernatural forces entering the world. And friends, we are the body of Christ. Or we kind of go in despair. We give up. We get burnt out. We go, it's impossible. And we still want to be Christians. So we kind of live our ordinary Christian life, but without the extraordinary of the power of the Spirit. Life in the kingdom here, this kind of wholehearted, Jesus is showing us a renewed life, what it means to be truly human, and he shows us this in three areas. The areas of verbal commitments, surrendered servanthood, and conquering love. Verbal commitments. Look with me at verse 33. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, heaven's the throne of God, or by the earth, the earth is God's footstool, or by Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, one of the things we have to recognize in all three of these areas is we have to understand what was meant in its original context, the intention of both the human and the divine author in this. And Sinclair Ferguson makes important points here. He says the Jewish people had what you might call a theology of oaths. And Jesus is basically saying this is very common during the time of Jesus' contemporaries. And 
Dr. Ferguson points out that an oath and a vow are two very separate things. An oath was concerned with one's future actions. I intend to do this. Where a vow was related to objects and their use. And the Old Testament law, Vic read out of Leviticus 19, spoke about how the Lord's name was not to be taken falsely. Now, verse 34, Jesus basically says here, he says, do not take an oath at all. Does this mean he's forbidding all oaths? Does this mean we can't go into the court of law if we're called to witness, we're subpoenaed, something like that? We can't do what the civil court says to do? Does this mean when you come before the elders for membership, you can't take vows of membership? Well, not so fast, because this is unlikely what Jesus was doing in the original context. Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 and 64, Jesus himself was appearing before court. The court was the Jewish tribunal oversought by the high priest Caiaphas. And the high priest says to Jesus, I adjure you, which lets you know it's a legal proceeding, I adjure you, he's adjudicating the case, by the living God, tell us if you were the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replies, you have said so. In other words, Jesus breaks his, when he's put under oath, breaks his silence that he had maintained in the earlier part of the process. So Jesus is not contradicting himself here, which means he must mean something different. Well, the context and the rest of the text tells us exactly what Jesus is speaking to, and he's speaking to a much larger issue. See, he's not talking simply about taking an oath in court, because look at what he forbids. He forbids swearing by heaven, swearing by the earth, swearing by Jerusalem, the city of God, swearing by even your own head. Now, why would anyone do this? Why would anyone swear by their own head? or earth, or any of this. Well, remember Leviticus 19. It forbid taking the Lord's name falsely. And it appears, and commentators throughout bear this out, that what people were doing, what was very common in that time, is people were taking oaths, and because they wanted to honor the law, kind of in name only, they would take oaths without using God's name. So as a result, what could they do? They could release themselves. I've only taken an oath by the name of earth or by my own head or by heaven. I haven't taken an oath by the name of God. See, I'm not using the name of God falsely. I'm hollowing God's name. And Jesus, because remember what he's doing in every one of these things, is saying that's not the true intention. He says that is utter hypocrisy and dishonesty. Heaven is God's throne. The earth is God's footstool. Jerusalem is... God's city, and you don't even number the hairs of your head or know its own color. And Dr. Ferguson says, no promise can ever be made, no word ever be spoken without it being done in the presence of God. See, here's the application. We live in the very presence of God. We are never as disciples, as members and citizens of the kingdom of God outside the very intimate presence of God. We love verses like Psalm 139 that says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, meaning the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And here's the application. We read verses like that, and that's comforting when you're facing a challenging situation. It's comforting if you're going in for surgery. It's comforting if you're struggling with something. 
but do you ever look at it as it's challenging when you're sitting down to dinner with your spouse, when you're having a cup of coffee with your friend, when you're hanging out, are you realizing, where shall I go from your spirit? Shall I go to Starbucks? No, I won't escape your spirit. How about this conversation? How about while I'm watching this sport? How about while I'm doing this? No, you live in the very presence of God. And life in the kingdom is about integrity. And God, Jesus, is about making you more human. And that's about truth. So that's the first area, verbal commitments. Now look at verse 38. The next area, he says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, we need to look at the context and the intention behind this. In Deuteronomy 19, I really could have had Vic give a long scripture reading on this, because there's a ton of Old Testament background in terms of Jesus' preaching here. Deuteronomy 19, verse 21, has the law that includes the principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But what's the purpose? What's the intention behind this? How did it express justice and right relationships? Commentators point out that clearly it was to limit and, if necessary, restrain retaliation. It was to limit vindictiveness Limit revenge. Limit these things. And it seems, however, that the law was used. Don't we do this today? We're so good at blame shifting and so good at excuse making That the law was used as justification for doing what? Oh, I can get even limited revenge and retaliation. This is completely to misunderstand the purpose of the law. Because commentators point out that when Jesus says, do not resist the one who's evil, he is speaking in a legal context. That that word legal, that word resist has a legal background. It means to take to court or to give testimony against. And the principle that Jesus is teaching here is do not stand on your rights in terms of your relationships with others. Sinclair Ferguson again rightly says, behind this lies the principle by which every Christian is called to live. Do not make your rights the basis for your relationships with others. Think about Jesus. What rights did Jesus have, by the way? Oh, he's only the owner of everything. And what did Mark say in the gospel? He says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life, to actually surrender his life as a surrendered servant, as a ransom for many. And Paul, applying the message of Jesus to the church at Philippi, said, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Remember we said last week it is so important to approach the scriptures and to ask the right questions and not be asking the wrong questions of a text of scripture. Jesus is forming a community after the image and personality and character of himself. He wants a family that will be conformed to his word, who will bear his likeness, who will be in the power of the Spirit, be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. In other words, who will live extraordinary, supernatural lives in the context of the ordinary. Is there more a place where you live extraordinary when you, re you renounce your rights to revenge, to getting even, to retaliation, and you surrender them? 
Jesus says, here's what it means in several examples. And he gives several different examples of what it means to conform to himself in this. First of all, turning the other cheek. Dr. Ferguson says this is not about being physically overtaken. In the context, Jesus is speaking more of what it would be like in that culture to be kind of slapped in the face. In other words, insulted. You may not be physically beaten, but you're shamed. You're insulted. And so when he says turn the other cheek, he's not saying walk into abuse. He's saying when the insults come and trust your reputation. Where is your reputation? Say, Does your reputation depend on what other people think of you? Or do you entrust your reputation functionally to what Jesus thinks of you? And likewise, with giving away your tunic, he says it doesn't mean that you give away all your clothes and walk around naked. But again, when met with opposition, you respond in grace. And Dr. Ferguson gives the example, he says, going the extra mile has to do with the fact that the Roman army, you have to realize that Israel was a subjugated, occupied nation, that they were under Roman rule at this time, and that the Roman army had the right to force people to assist them. So later in the Gospel of Mark, we read that one Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry Jesus' cross. That was part of the Roman occupation. The Jews hated this practice because it was a constant public reminder of their shame, of their humiliation, that they weren't liberated, that they weren't free, that they were a humiliated nation. And Jesus, again, is saying when you're drafted and you have to walk the 1,000 paces Go two miles. Go 2,000 paces. Carry the load one more mile. Do you ask when going into relationships, do you prepare yourself in interactions to say, am I all about my power? Am I all about my rights? Am I all about defending myself? Or do I look not only to my own but to the interests of others? Dr. Ferguson points out, he says, how are we different We may be showing other people by how we're relating, by this supernatural, extraordinary, countercultural style of relating, we answer to another emperor. His name is Jesus, and he takes care of us. Our reputation is secure in him. We do not need to defend ourselves. Lastly, conquering love. New Testament, holy war. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. One of the things to understand the message and the teaching, the doctrine of Jesus, that's important to do is to see how the apostles applied it to the life of congregations. Because what a Paul, a James, a Peter, what they're doing is they're taking the message and the doctrine of Jesus and they're applying it now to churches at Philippi and Galatia and Colossae and here at Rome. So, for example, Romans chapter 12, verse 17, you see one such place where is, I think, an excellent commentary on Jesus' message here. Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, 
but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's New Testament holy war. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome, conquer, defeat, win the battle of evil. How? By your goodness. Conquer evil with good. What in the world does this mean? I think Tim Keller gives absolutely the best explanation of this, where he says the principle here is given in verse 21 of overcoming evil with good. And he points out that the word overcome is, this is why I call it New Testament holy war. The word overcome is a military word, and it means to overpower. But it's not like now, the books of Joshua, Judges, Kings, and all that, where it's go and ransack and defeat and do all this. Now, on the other side of the cross and the resurrection and the present rule and reign of Jesus, Paul is given what is an utterly countercultural and penetrating insight. Dr. Keller says that Paul is saying that if you repay evil with evil, you immediately lose the battle to evil. And that the only way to defeat evil is with doing good to the one who has done harm. Now, sometimes that doing good, Jesus points out this, doesn't mean walking into abuse, may mean sometimes you can't even stay in relationship with the person. But Jesus is very specific here when he talks of loving your enemies and praying for your persecutors. You may not be in relationship with them anymore, but are you still praying for them? What is filling your heart? Is it seeking their retribution or is it seeking their repentance? Is it seeking them to get it because they've gotten you so that you're frothing with resentment and bitterness? In that case, do you hear what Dr. Keller is saying? Evil has won. He says, if you hate a person who has wronged you, that person has won. The only way to defeat the evil, to conquer it, New Testament holy war, is to forgive and to love, to bless the other person. He says, when we identify evil too closely with the evildoer, so to destroy evil is to destroy the evildoer, meaning we're getting them, we unwittingly become a pawn of the evil force behind the evildoer. He gives the illustration of the Lord of the Rings, where any good person who uses the ring of the evil Lord Sauron to put down the evil Lord becomes evil in the process. The same thing is here. If you're just frothing with anger and animosity and hatred and it's eating, up you, eating you up inside, it is a poison. And Dr. Keller says there's two results. One, he says, we refuse then, he says, when we refuse to give in to the evil. In other words, when we overcome evil with our prayers and our goodness and our tenderness and our love, he says, here's what happens. First of all, the spread of evil is stopped. person is evil and they're evil towards us, but it stops with us. It doesn't pass into us. The spread of evil is checked. It's like it stops at the door. 
its pride, its hatred does not infect us. And then he says, secondly, the spread of evil may be checked in the evildoer. And he says, it may be because when Paul says that our prayers, our words, our good deeds could be pouring burning coals on his head, it's a way of saying that it's possible that remorse, change, repentance may occur. The hostile person may be led to shame, a right kind of shame, alarm, remorse, in a sense rebuked by our kindness. Once again, holy war, where we are looking to conquer evil with good. Now, how in the world do we do this practically? I think again, and I take a lot of this from Romans where Paul says we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. You have to learn to think theologically. And to think theologically means to think gospel. In, and you have to learn the discipline of doing this on a daily basis. This is continual renewal. And that means start by asking yourself searching questions. Looking at your challenges. Looking at your relationships. And asking yourself, do I love only those that I consider to be deserving of love? Do I love people who are different from myself? Do I love only those who in my eyes are worthy of love? In other words, do I love only those who from my perspective, so am I doing what's right in my own eyes? Am I living by what makes sense to me? It may be logical, but if I'm doing only what makes sense to my perspective, how do I know I'm listening to God and his word through the Holy Spirit? Verses 46 and 47 tells us if we love only those who love us in return, uh, even the tax collectors who were the worst of the worst in that society, by the way, did that. And then after you ask searching questions, it's almost like Spurgeon's line. The way up is down. So you ask the searching questions and you've gone down. How in the world do you go up? And of course, the only way to go up is for the gospel and the cross of Jesus to be not only the model and paradigm and example for your life, but the actual power for your life. In Romans chapter 5, we read, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Now let me stop there. Notice it doesn't say, When we became good people, logical, treating Jesus with kindness, courtesy, and respect. No, while we were enemies. While we had active hostility towards him. While we were hating him. While we were opposed to him. Do you recognize that's what you were? And how did God respond? While we were enemies, the death of Jesus reconciled us to himself. But then he goes on, he says, much more. Wow, there can be even much more than reconciliation? Yes, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved? Present tense by his life. Do you recognize there's three orientations to salvation? There's a past orientation, and that's kind of what reconciliation is talking about. You are forgiven. Your sins are atoned for, and you're reconciled to God. You're saved from your sin, past tense. And there's a future orientation where you will be glorified. You will see Jesus as he is, and you will be perfectly like him, and you will be glorified. But there's also a present orientation where you are currently being saved. You are being made more human. 
and you're being made more human as you love, which also means the opposite. When you don't love, when you do only what makes sense to yourself, when you live more out of your habits than in this supernatural way, you're being dehumanized, that the way to become more human is to be more loving. And that much more by Jesus' life is he presently saving you. And that is why the cross of Christ is not just a model, but it must be our power to follow through with it. Dr. Keller says that in verse 19 of chapter 12 in Romans, where he says, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. He says what we're being reminded is that all resentment, all bitterness, all vengeance is taking on God's role as judge. It is playing God. But only God is qualified to be judge. We are imperfect. We don't measure up to the job description. And only God knows enough to be judge. We don't know all about the offender, what he or she has faced, what their life's been like, nor what they deserve. Do you recognize the judgment you may be offering them is just a thumbnail compared to, what does he say, leave room for the wrath of God? If you've given them your wrath, you've crowded out the wrath of God. You've said, God, I don't need you. Your wrath is real. You've left it aside. And you've pushed aside God's justice. And do you realize Jesus took the judgment of God? Which means Paul is saying here, again, think theologically. Renew your mind. Think this. Either these persons that you're actively hating, that you're being resentful to, that you're trying to retaliate against, that you're angry at, there's one of two choices that are going to happen. Either they're going to repent someday and Jesus will take their judgment, or they will not and God will deal with it. But as Dr. Keller rightly points out, he says, in either process, you're not involved. He says the gospel is what makes us remember that if God were to square all accounts with us, where would we be? If we got what we deserved, where would we be? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us supernatural people. That as we see the kingdom, we live in the kingdom and we live by its power. Continue to renew us, Father, as we take in your word and as we live your word. In Jesus' name, amen.